Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Christine Stolakis on Pray Away. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the history category for episode number 132 with Kristen Swenson on a most peculiar book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. This is Kristen Swenson, author of A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Christine Stolakis is a documentary film director whose work wrestles with politics, prejudice, and power. Her debut feature, Pray Away, takes you inside the history and continuation of the gay conversion therapy movement, and it's a film you can watch now on Netflix. Christine, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So how did you end up working on this film, Pray Away? Yes, so I got to this topic because a dear family member of mine, my uncle, actually went through conversion therapy himself. So he came out as transgender when he was a child and was brought to conversion therapy during a time when every therapist was a conversion therapist. This was in the 60s. So this is a time when all therapists thought that being LGBTQ was some kind of sickness. He was put on antidepressants. And that became a journey of a lifelong, a lifelong set of mental health challenges that included anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, suicidal ideations, addiction issues, a whole host of things that I've learned are very common among people who go through conversion therapy in some way. So when I became an adult and decided to embark on my first feature film, I knew I wanted the topic to be conversion therapy and the um, conversion therapy movement more broadly. And when I started doing research, I learned two really notable things that felt important for me to explore in a film. One was that I found that the majority of conversion therapy organizations are actually run by LGBTQ people themselves who claim to have changed from gay to straight or from trans to cis. And and for me, this was really the key that unlocked my own personal understanding of my uncle, who for his entire life was very desperate for change, truly believed that change was possible, really believed that change was around the corner. And that was part of what impacted his mental health so much, because you can understand the devastation if you truly believe that change is possible and you truly believe that's the best way to be not only psychologically healthy, but spiritually healthy. I was also raised Catholic. Um, You can see how devastating it would be, how much you would blame yourself if you never changed. Um, So that was one thing that really sort of surprised me and helped me unaware of this movement and how intoxicating it is for people who grow up in homophobic or transphobic environments. The motivation for change is great. And this promise of change is is so, so appealing. Um, The second thing that really grabbed me is that I thought conversion therapy was something small, something maybe a bit niche, and something that happened in the past. And all of those things couldn't be farther from the truth. So we know that the conversion therapy movement also called the ex-LGBTQ movement, also called the change movement, is alive and well today. We know that, and this is a crazy thing to say, we know that nearly 700,000 people in the U.S. alone have gone through some version of this. This is not niche. This is actually quite common and commonplace among 
conservative and even mainstream religious and Christian communities in our country and around our world. So that shocked me. And um, that was really the beginning of what became a five-year journey of making Pray Away. Is conversion therapy strictly or maybe at least mostly a religious movement? It's a great question. So in 1973, the psychological community declassified being LGBTQ as a mental disorder. So, and it remains true as it should that all major medical and psychological associations not only say that this conversion therapy doesn't work, they say it's incredibly painful, traumatic, and harmful. So when that happened, you had a host of people in the 70s who were looking for a place to change still. And religious communities really took up the mantle to say, oh, no, 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 this can work. We can, you can do this. Um, and they started ministries where people who were trying to change, and this is in our film, started ministries to say, hey, if you want to try to change, we're with you. We want to try to change ourselves. Let's do this. And that began what is now continued to be the ex-LGBTQ movement, where you have these religious organizations with people at the top who claim to have changed themselves or are trying to change. So to your point, yes, the movement itself is, is largely religious. We know that the majority of conversion therapy actually happens within religious institutions today. It um, can look like counseling. It might happen with a pastor uh, who acts as a pseudo counselor uh, and is kind of pulling on these disproven, um, old, outdated psychological beliefs about why one is gay uh, into their counts, their quote unquote counseling. Um, it can look like a kind of peer support group or maybe a weekly Bible study where someone is leading a group in, in a some sort of group therapy session it can also look like going to conferences. It can look like reading a lot of books about how to change written by, again, people who claim to have changed themselves. Um, and then weaved into what has become a more religious movement overall is a handful of licensed therapists who continue to believe and practice these disproven, outdated, and harmful beliefs about why someone is LGBTQ. So it becomes almost like this handshake agreement between this small group of therapists and this much larger religious movement, where the religious movement gets credibility from this group of therapists saying, hey, you're not just, you know, believing that this is wrong because of what you believe the Bible says. We're going to say, we're, we're here to tell you, you know, because of this disproven, outdated piece of, you know, scientific paper that we're still citing 40 years later, we're here to tell you that you're actually doing what's right psychologically speaking. So that lends credibility to the movement. Um, and then frankly, these therapists get clients. And so there's a relationship between the two. Um, psychology is a part of the movement. It's part of what drives the movement. Um, but yes, the movement itself is really steeped in religion. What was the starting point for actually putting this film together? Was it going around and finding those who had been through conversion therapy? And just how difficult was it to find people? That's a great question. So very specifically, the film really started when I found an apology letter from a former leader who started what became the largest conversion therapy organization in the world called Exodus International. And it's the uh, religious uh, ministry, which you could think of as like a religious nonprofit, 
that really housed a lot of the ex-LGBTQ movement for decades. And this would have been so Michael Bussey. And this would have been Michael Bussey. This was Michael Bussey, yep. exactly. So I found Michael Bussey's apology letter on his own personal website that essentially said, I started the what became the biggest conversion therapy organization in the world. Five years after starting it or so, I fell in love with one of our co-founders. <laughs> I realized that I hadn't changed one bit, that my feelings of change had to do with belonging to a community of people where I could say I was gay, that had to do with maybe a spiritual experience um, that made me feel connected to something greater, but it wasn't change. And I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I did this. And that for me, it's like the film just popped into my head as soon as I read his apology letter. So the backbone of the film is really people going into and then leaving the LGBTQ movement. We have a handful of former leaders. We have a survivor um, in the film. And that conception came when I read Michael's apology letter because I thought, oh my gosh, what is that journey? How do people get into this? And then how did he leave? So I started getting into contact with other former leaders um, Michael, there's um, someone named Randy Thomas, I bet Cantu Schneider, John Polk, who are all in the film, um, and asked them to share their journey with me. And it was really important to me to shine a light on how power works in this movement, that these are a group of leaders who are the definition of internalized hatred wielded outward. They're often survivors themselves. They're people who've been through conversion therapy. This is, you know, hurt people hurting other people. Um, and these are people who often enter the movement because of really, really good intentions. A lot of them believe they are doing the right thing and the good thing. And I, I wanted to understand that. And then in the film, we weave in the story of a survivor, Julie Rogers, who experienced the movement primarily from the perspective of being a participant, someone who was not in leadership for the majority of her time in conversion therapy as a way to complexly hold these people who are also victims in some ways themselves accountable because they also cause tremendous harm. And I know that firsthand because of my experience in my own family. Uh, so that's that was, you know, where the film transitioned from an idea that was really inspired in the wake of my uncle's passing. He passed away right before I went to film school into a film where we follow people's journeys. You speak with a number of people who were formerly in this conversion therapy, but then realized that it was denying them their true selves. You did also speak with a few individuals who are denying their homosexuality in current times. Did you deal with any rejection with regards to trying to find that story? And what ultimately led you to the gentleman who did decide to be a part of this film? So Jeffrey McCall is in our film and he represents the point of view of someone who's still in leadership in an ex-LGBTQ organization. He identifies as ex-trans. Um, I'm not sure if he uses this language himself, but it's similar to the world that we're seeing of quote unquote detransitioners or people who are speaking out against trans rights using their own personal story to say that being trans was harmful to them in some way. Of course, we know that the real harm is transphobia and the, um, the danger that a lot of trans people face every day in their lives uh, in this country and in this world. But yes, we filmed with Jeffrey McCall 
And he is someone who really does believe that what he's doing is right. He and I disagree about the consequences of his actions, but I do think he's someone that really believes that he's doing the right thing. And I think because of that, to answer your question, he was very willing to be in the film pretty much right away. Mm. I did not experience a lot of rejection or trepidation from people uh, when asking to have someone represent a voice that shows people that this continues today and, and shows people that this is something that certain people really believe has happened to them. Uh, and yeah, he, he, to his credit, wrote me back pretty much immediately and said, you know, can we talk on the phone? And we talked on the phone and he pretty quickly allowed cameras to start joining him in the Freedom March. And I really appreciate that because a lot of people practice this in the dark. A lot of people practice this in secret and he was willing to go on the record. Um, I know he doesn't view what he's doing as conversion therapy, which is common in this movement. But the reality is that the conversion therapy as a practice has always existed within this larger LGBTQ movement of conferences, books, talks, rallies. Um, it's um, a practice that is part of a larger belief system that has a whole world that you can surround yourself with. Um, and that was something I think we really did capture with our time uh, filming with the Freedom March. How did Family Research Council fuel this conversion therapy ridiculousness? I would flip that in a small way, which is to say political right organizations have taken and continue to take advantage of the narrative, the ex-LGBTQ narrative, to support homophobic and transphobic policies. And you see that in our film through the story of Yvette Cantu Schneider, who was hired by the Family Research Council for a number of reasons, but to push policy that was in favor of heterosexual marriage being the only way to get married in this country, among other um, homophobic and transphobic laws that they were pushing. And the thinking is, well, and this is explored in our film, you know, if a white straight man says this, it's going to be looked at as bigoted. But if someone who calls themselves formally gay says this, well, they have some authority that we don't. And you can see how people's identities get weaponized to create laws that hurt everyone, even if you're not in a religious community. And we're seeing that today in terms of this ex-trans or detransitioner movement um, that we're kind of seeing explode be used to promote and support anti-trans legislation. Uh, so that it continues today, um, which is really a shame. It really is a shame. Uh, and I hope that organizations like that watch our film and consider the fact that these are vulnerable people who are hurting uh, and that their story shouldn't be weaponized to support laws that hurt a tremendous number of people. It was a little surprising to be reminded that California banned gay marriage back in 2008 with the passage of Prop B. But then again, even Barack Obama, his official stance when he took office was opposition to gay marriage. Now, of course, that changed over the eight years, although we obviously still have a ways to go, Christine. It does feel like society is starting to evolve in a very positive way over the last 13 years. Has conversion therapy, have these efforts really ebbed over the last five to 10 years, helping us to restore some sort of hope that uh, we are getting things going in the right direction? Hmm. I have two minds to answer your question. So part of me in making this film was struck by how much homophobia and transphobia continue in our larger culture into today, just to say. 
And for me, it's not just a hopeful story in terms of us being on some arc towards true justice, true equality, true equity, true affirmation for all LGBTQ folks around our world. And yes, I also experienced, for example, religious communities that publicly affirm and fight for LGBTQ rights and dignity. I can't, dignity, I can't imagine that happening 25 years ago. So I hold both truths and experiences in my head. I think there has been tremendous progress. I am a half glass full kind of person. So I believe that we are going to only see more progress, big picture. But on the day to day, does that mean that every day is progress? Not at all. I mean, we have had a unprecedented number of pieces of anti-trans legislation passed just this year. And people might not on instinct connect anti-trans legislation to the conversion therapy movement, but it's part of that larger ex-LGBTQ belief system. There's only one way to be healthy and that is cis and straight. And if you're not doing that, something is wrong with you. That's not true. We know that's not true, but that's the, that's the message that this movement sends. Um, so I don't know it, you know, it's a mix of hope and, um, I don't want to say fear, a hope of hope and raising awareness that the work has yet to be done. Um, and I know I'm sort of jumping around a bit in my answer to your question, but I, I something I do want to say also is for people who are in the movement right now, who think there is not a world where they can exist and be completely affirmed and loved for who they are, that is some kind of religious community. It's not true. There are so many religious communities who are, to your point, making progress and coming out and affirming and fighting for LGBTQ people, you know, in all ways. So I really hope people know that those communities exist, that they find those communities. If seeking a higher power through Christianity is important to you, you can find those communities. And that's something we do also show in the film. Do those who escape conversion therapy typically remain Christian or do they often end up shunning the religion altogether? It's a great question and it's a mix. It's Mm -hmm. a mix. I've seen both and I think both are completely valid ways to continue your life. For some people, it belonging to a religious community after the fact can be extremely overwhelming. And I understand that. And I do not think that one needs to feel like they need to continue belonging to a spiritual or religious community if you don't want to. It's really up to you. Uh, And if you want to continue to belong to some sort of religious community, there are communities that will accept you with open arms. Um, Both are totally valid journeys. And I've seen both. A couple of modern-day leaders of conversion therapy groups are Ricky Shillette and Ann Paula, both of whom denied your request for an interview. If you could ask each of them one question, what would it be? Hmm. I've never been asked that question. Hmm. I really have to think about that. Okay. I've just spent so much time with so many different survivors in this movement. And from this movement that it's hard for me to think of one single question because thinking more about from the place of compassion is that I do really believe that both Ricky Shillette and Ann Polk think they are doing the right thing. And I have witnessed firsthand the pain and trauma that this movement leaves with survivors that does not, it just never goes away. So... I would have loved to have done a whole interview with both people so that I would have had time to ask a few questions about that piece 
of urging them to try to process that pain and trauma and to consider not using their personal stories or the personal stories of others of change to continue this harm. And I think exploring those good intentions would have been a part of our interview that I would have loved to do because this is not a movement of a couple bad apples. And I know people have good intentions in this movement, but if you spend time listening to the stories of survivors, it's hard to deny its harm. And I think exploring that contradiction is the thing I had hoped to do in an interview. Are those who end up coming back out of the proverbial closet typically pretty well accepted by the LGBTQ plus community? Hmm. It's all over the map. You know, the LGBTQ plus community is really hundreds, thousands, millions of LGBTQ plus communities. And I think every community is going to have their own way of processing and managing and seeing former leaders of this movement who come out as LGBTQ and are trying to find their place in some sort of LGBTQ community. And all I can say is that for each of these former leaders, that is a really specific part of their journey. And it's, it's extremely local, that experience, you know, who's their next door neighbor, who's in the church they go to, who's a part of the book club that they start attending, you know, and I know people experience all sorts of responses because there are over 700,000 or pardon me, nearly 700,000 people that have been a part of this in the U.S. alone. So there's 700,000 experiences of what this could be like. There are people who commit suicide because of this movement. We know that kids that go through this are more than twice as likely to commit suicide. There are people who go to an ex-LGBTQ program, spend a week there, come out as gay to their family the next week, and actually feel like they got something positive from that experience. That's a minority, but I've also heard of that experience. So how you experience this world is going to impact how you view these leaders. For us in the film, the point that we wanted to get across is that as long as homophobia and transphobia exists, that motivation for change exists. Something like the conversion therapy movement that we've seen over the past decades that continues today, it'll continue. Because if that wasn't true, these leaders that are defecting over and over and over again, they would have ended the movement. But that's not the case. The movement continues because this larger culture of hate is basically training new leaders to take these other leaders' place. So, you know, we decided not to get into the weeds of the individual's journeys after the fact, after they left the movement, because for us, we wanted what to be centered in the film. What we wanted to be centered in the film was really the pain and trauma that the movement causes. Last question, Christine. Although he did pass away just before you entered film school, he is the inspiration for this documentary of yours, and it is an excellent film. I highly encourage everybody to check it out on Netflix starting today. What are some of the things that you still love about your uncle here in 2021? Oh, my goodness. Well, as I shared with you earlier, I just had a child myself, and caring for her is one of the most profound experiences that I've had thus far in my life. Because I think when you care for a child and try to love them completely for who they are, um, you make the world a safe place because you are their world in some ways. And makes me feel emotional thinking about that. And the fact that my uncle did that for me, you know, he made my world 
when I was small, a really safe place, a fun place, a creative place. You know, he was a really incredible storyteller. And I used to spend hours sitting on his couch where he would just tell me stories. It was like story time with my uncle, (laughs) but I was the only one in the audience. Um, And it was like, it was the best. And he was funny and joyful and perceptive and observant. And he'd gone through so much and he had a way of both protecting me from all he went through, but also helping me really see the world for the complexity that it is. I don't know. He's one of the first people that I loved. So I, you know, he's one of the most important people that I've in my life. So I don't know how to sum up my, what I love about him most, but all I can say is that I know I loved him completely and he loved me too. And you can't ask for anything more. Well, clearly with the demons that he was battling throughout his life, he passed on a number of positive qualities for you, including that storytelling ability, which is on display with Pray Away. It is an excellent new documentary. You can check it out now on Netflix. She is Christine Stalakis, a filmmaker who is making her feature film debut with Pray Away right now. Christine, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for your level-headedness with this conversation and also with the film that you just made. I think it's going to make a very profound impact on those who choose to watch it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a total delight. Join me next time when I speak with ultramarathon runner Dean Carnassus about a runner's high, my life in motion. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.